there, friends. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the Adulthood Revisited Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Kiston. Super thankful uh, that you're here spending your time with me wherever you are in the world doing whatever it is you may be doing. I truly appreciate you spending your time and energy with me. Um, it's actually very sunny here today in New York City, working from home, but it's beautiful. What a beautiful day. If this is any intimation of what spring and summer is going to look like, I am super excited. If you haven't already done so, if you can head to wherever we get your podcast, if you can share, subscribe, leave a rating review or review, show all the love. I really appreciate appreciate it. It'll help the show grow and it'll mean so much to me from the bottom of my heart. But getting to today's episode, I'm super excited to share with you um, my guest. We connected on Facebook and she has her offering and the way she works with people is something I haven't come across before. And I'm, I'm very intimately interested in it because... I've had to deal with what she works in, in my own family. Um, so I'm super excited to know more about how she works with people and why she works with people in the way she does. So I'm uh, pleased to introduce Judeline Gaelic, uh, Gaelic to the podcast. Judy, how are you? And welcome to the Adulthood Revisited podcast. Richard, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This is so amazing. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I want to apologize. Literally two seconds ago, we discussed your last name, and I still bought you. <laughs> <laughs> Judeline Gallic. Judeline Gallic. I will remember the but so it's Judeline, okay. It's okay. I appreciate your sympathy. Um, all right, so let's just dive right into it because you've got curious history um, behind you, and I don't want to. I don't want to steal your thunder. I'll just share the the highlights. You're you have an MBA after your name. You're a certified life coach, but in the last four years or so, you've been working with people and families particularly in helping them create, I guess, program and welfare around recovery addiction. So if you can just dive into, maybe take us back to how you got started into this or, or better yet, your journey to where you are today. Oh, that's a, a wonderful question. Um, thank you for that. My journey, I would say it, it, it all began from, from frustration, really, from anger, from fear, um, and just, um, it was more so like a divine intervention in how it happened, uh, because addiction isn't something that I was um, aware of. I mean, I knew it existed, but I wasn't fully aware of it until I started working in the field as a family, um, special, uh, family engagement specialist. That was the name of it. Um, so before that, though, I was working as a case manager, uh, my first office job. And prior to that experience, I was uh, working as a certified uh, nurse's aide. And I did that overnight. So if you don't know what that is, it's if you nursing homes, if you know what nursing homes are, um, with the older population, so I was taking care of them, providing personal care and all that. Um, it was wonderful work, I loved it, but it was just a lot. And my daughter was young, um, I was angry with life, I was just you know. I wanted more. I was asking, uh, what else is there? There has to be another way. Um, there has to be more to life. There has to be something different. And that's when I started um, just wanting something better. I started listening to podcasts and um, I put the intention out there and I landed the position 
in the recovery field as a family engagement specialist. And don't ask me how I landed that position. It was really divine intervention because I had no experience. But I found myself educating people, the families, about drug and alcohol addiction. And mind you, um, it wasn't something I was aware of before. Like I didn't have that background. So I had to do a lot of self-educating. And but the position I was in too, um, I had a lot of autonomy. So I didn't have that, you know, that program that was like laid out for me. I had to teach myself. You know, I had to basically just dive in head first. Um, so I attended the meetings. Um, I started applying the things I was learning and teaching to my life. And it wasn't until then that I discovered, holy crap, like, you know, I have a lot of toxic relationships around me. Um, and this is exactly the reason why I'm so unhappy and frustrated, you know? So just implementing the, the things I was teaching the families, um, I started seeing the, the results I was getting and the results that other people are getting. So that really is what inspired me. Um, but now it became, it's come to the point to be more so like a, a responsibility. Like I have, like I, I feel like I, I mean, it's a bold statement, right? To say that you have the answer. I don't have the answer to anything, but I know that my methods work. And if someone is willing to, you know, at least implement it and try it, they can get the results that they want as well. But Recovery is a, it's a self-discovery road for sure. One thing may work for one person and it may not work for another. Yeah, that's, I, I def, there's a lot that I like to dive into there. Sorry, long-winded. <laughs> I, I appreciate it, lots of material. Yes. If, if we can jump back though, years ago, because um, you said like you were working, you never saw yourself here. You, were, you had other jobs, CNA, you're working in other, and then from there you kind of moved along and step-by-step step to get to where you are today. But if you can take us back, however far you think, like, where did you see yourself? Like, what was your, when you were younger, maybe as a kid or, or growing up in school or so, what was the vision for your life? And, and how did you, how was that coming along? Um, that's a wonderful question. Great question. So I remember wanting to be a doctor when I was a, a, a child, um, I would say around five, seven-ish, you know? Um, hey, what do you want to be? Like people, grown-ups would ask me this question all the time. What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, and I would be like, yeah, a doctor. But then as I, um, as I grow up, as I gain experience, life experience, right? Um, I understand there are all sorts of different types of doctors. It's not just medical doctors. You can be a philosophy um, doctors or, you know, education or whatnot. Um, it's the, the roads varies. I still inspire to be a, a doctor. I do um, want to pursue my PhD one day but it would be in the field of recovery. But before that, though, it was, I would say it was an MD. I wanted to be a, a medical doctor because that's all I knew. I asked that question particularly yeah, because... That's, yeah. It's completely different from what I'm doing now. And I have my master's. The reason I asked that is because I, I think like, 
whether we want to admit or not, like how much our family experiences shape where we are. And I, like, I look at it in my own life, how my experiences as a kid in my family show themselves now. So some of it was like, I assume that some of your family pushed you to become a doctor, pursue medicine. Like, do you think any of that, putting, setting aside an MD, like any of your family experiences are showing up now in the work that you do with families? I would say not really, not really. Um, it, it, it all depends, right? There's the common thread of it. Emotional intelligence is a common theme, right? Um, if you're a human being and you have a brain, you have emotions. There are certain things that you will experience when you're in a relationship with another individual, right? Um, and whether that individual is behaving in a way that's to your liking or is in alignment with your values or not and how you communicate and, and all of that, right? It all, it all depends, but um, I believe, though, had I followed the trajectory that my family had for me, I would have been a doctor already. Um, you know, if you ask my mom, she'd probably tell you, you know, I made all the wrong choices um, because <laughs> if I had followed her plans, I would have been a doctor already. I would have had, you know, the half a million dollar house or whatever, you know, <laughs> but um, here I am just um, starting out in my business and, and um, starting off at first it was more so like a, a hobby helping people it's not something I was charging for it's just recently something that you know so um I'm in a different level than I'm in a different place than where they would have wanted me to be I would say if I were to assess myself honestly you know I hear I, I get that all the time too. My family, I, I think they would have preferred me being a doctor as opposed to a lawyer, but it is what it is. Um, I want to talk to you now about the, the shift in career change. I think a lot of people that I, that I connect with, especially on the podcast, they have very interesting inflection points. And one of the ones that you shared was you're working as a CNA, like direct mm -hmm. to end user healthcare and helping people in um, nursing homes or like those kinds of facilities. What what was the driving force for you to go from working as a CNA, right, hand to hand, like direct to working with people to then shifting over to management? Wonderful question again. And I would say it's because that's what I knew. That's what I like most people around me, all the adults were doing. Um that's what my mother did for years. Um, I believe that's what she still does. I'm not in contact with my mother. I haven't talked to her in over a year now. Um, I, I love my mother. Don't get me wrong. She's a wonderful human being. But at the moment, we're just not seeing eye to eye on a few key things. Um, so I just find it um, safer for me or like for my sanity, at least, just to keep my distance, you know, to, to love from a distance. But... Yeah, it, it, it's, um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, it's, it all depends, right? It's not like one, one specific thing. 
I don't know if I'm answering that question. I feel like I'm not. If you feel free to ask me again. <laughs> well, no, there's I, look, I understand that there's no definitive answer. It's just there's, I, I, this is just the way I view the world, right? We'll, we'll make decisions based on like a, a, a change in desire, right? For me, I, and just to share a little bit, like I, I've been running my own law office for the last 10 years. And while that's been good, I've realized that I like I wanted more, right? And so what was the driving force? It's not just about, I think for a long time, I operated based on what my parents wanted me to do, what I thought people wanted me to do, the expectations of being a lawyer and having having to pursue that. I The work is nice and I really enjoy helping people, but is it, I come to a place now in my life where it's like, I, I feel like there's more that I have to give. I, this is why this podcast came about, why I do mm-hmm. other kinds of projects. And so when I have these conversations with people, Usually a, a change in whether it's job, a change in partner, a change in relationship, a change in sit where they're living, it's usually driven by that. So in your case, I was curious if if the shift from working as a CNA, because there are people who work as a CNA and then um, maybe their goal is like becoming a, a registered nurse, right? But just staying within like that pattern of, of working directly with the, the patients. Um so I just was curious if there was something else, yeah. what was driving you to go into management? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's, um, I see your angle now. And, um, I, for me, when I, when I did, um, get into the CNA field, that medical field, that was my, that, that was the goal to become an MD, right? Because I, I think subconsciously I was still uh, striving for that. So I did the um, CNA. I did have a desire to, to study nursing, going to nursing. But then when I figured all the vigorous studying that it's involved and um, my daughter was like, four years old at that time too it was just going to be too much for me I, I didn't think I could handle it and then there's the um the feces the human bodily fluids and all of that stuff you know <laughs> so um yeah that kind of just turned me off and then when I went into the office work um as a case manager I was in the office environment doing doing paperwork and I was behind the desk, that too was an ideal situation for me. So those were experiences where um, I feel like I had to experience to find out that um, I didn't really like that environment. I didn't really like how, how I felt doing that type of work. Not that it wasn't honorable work, you know, serving people. They were all within family and service in the community and all that, right? But it wasn't, um, I wasn't in a place where my creativity was, was in use. And when I went to the, when I landed the uh, family engagement specialist position, uh, that was completely different. And then it was in that whole process when I started asking myself questions, like, what do I do with this awareness? What do I do with this information? What do I, how do I um, teach people better? How do I find a better way to, to teach people what I'm seeing, to help people be inspired and stay motivated and take care of themselves so that way they show up in a way 
to serve their loved ones struggling through recovery, right? Who can't really manage their emotions themselves um, and really break away from the cycle of addiction, really. Because I, I saw the, I saw there was a gap. There's, there's what recovery really looks like. And then there's the idea of what the family thinks recovery should look like, if that makes sense. Um, and there's also um, the misunderstanding or just the mis, I don't know what it is, but like a lot of people just think that, oh, if this person doesn't stop using or drinking, then I cannot find happiness and I cannot be happy. So I have to find a way to get this person to stop stop drinking and stop using whatever it is, whatever that substance is. Um, so then they can start feeling better about themselves, uh, which is why I always say that one thing, it's not even about the drugs and alcohol. It's more so about that human connection, that those relationships, you know, how we communicate, how we um, show up for each other when it matters most. I'll stop there. I feel like I'm, no, no, it's it's very insightful. I mean, I, and now I want to turn to because you spent about plus or minus thirteen years or so in that capacity as a family care specialist and helping families, serving them in different capacities, particularly around um, you know issues that that come up with recovery. Were there instances like what was the cause for you to say? I, there's something more for me to do here because like lots of I'm sure there are other family people who worked in your same position who, you know, they were serving people, helping people. But it's one thing you you sort of shared that it was started off as a hobby, helping other people around the information that you had learned in this capacity. But what were there things that specifically drove you to go from dabbling as a hobby to saying to yourself, maybe this is something more that I could, you know, re directly coach and deliver to families around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I was an employee working for the rehabilitation facility center, um, although I had a lot of autonomy as far as how I facilitated those family meetings and ran the family program, um, I was not really in the play within the family units long enough to um, help the families ex make that shift. Um, because, you know, as the saying goes, you can have an understanding of something, you can understand something logically, but when it comes to implementing it and practicing it, right, it's completely different, right? Um, and sometimes people will listen to women or have a conversation with a family. Um, they'll be super motivated and understanding. And then they're very quick to shift right back to what wasn't working because they're programming away, if that makes sense. You know, like it's the, the default habits, those... Um, self-destructive behaviors, um, non-self-serving habits that don't serve, like habits that don't serve us, if that makes sense. So um, yeah, that's what I would say because I really wanted to, to be able to work with my clients. Now I work with my clients um, for six months, 
that's that's a commitment because recovery it's not like a quick fix you know people um don't go to rehab and and wherever they go and then come out cured right that's just not what happens but some sometimes that's what the families think that they're going to send their loved ones to detox and then that person will go into a, a residential program and perhaps that person will stay in a halfway house or a sober house or wherever and then with Within a year or two, there um, that person will go home and everything will be okay. But it doesn't happen like that, you know. Not unless um, the families also do some work to create a conducive environment that's fitting for recovery. I want to turn to the. Did that answer the question? It it, it absolutely did, um, and it leads perfectly, perfectly into what I wanted to get to next, which is how you work with your clients now. And you shared some a little bit about this, but if we can dive a little deeper, you you shared that, and I think it's pretty powerful that there's a disconnect between what people think recovery is, you know, from whether it's TV or books or or articles and internet versus what recovery truly is. Um, can you share some experiences around like what that actually looks like with a family or someone that reaches out to you for help? Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the main concerns that some families have shared with me, um, families have expressed this to me, and and that's when we first start working together, right? So the first thing that people say to me and, and we're having a conversation and they say, well, Judy, you know what? Um, she's been addicted to heroin for the past five, 10 years. She hasn't made any um, decent decisions in her life, you know? Um, how am I supposed to trust her to make any right decisions from this point on, right? So the family's... Um, essentially do feel and i'm not i'm not speaking for every family this is i understand this is a general statement but every family is different right but some families do feel that um because the individual is addicted to a particular substance that individual cannot make decisive like um viable decision or an informed decision or decision that would benefit them in some sort um because of that but that's exactly what people need people need to feel in charge of their lives you know people need to feel that autonomy that um I can get up and say, all right, I'm going to the store and I don't have to get interrogated by my mother asking, hey, where are you going? Who are you going to be around? Um, you know, who's going to be there? Let me smell your breath. Let me see your eyes. Should I test you when you come back? You know, like it's just, you know, it's insane. Some of the things that the families do but it's mainly from fear. It's not because, you know, they they consciously want to put the pressure and make the situations worse, right? They just don't know. So they are more, in essence, reacting from that place of fear, wanting to, in essence, prevent or control something that they don't really have much control over. So um, my work with the families, it's kind of like unpacking um, situations like that and bringing light and helping families understand 
why they are behaving the way they are. Like what is really that driving factor behind those behaviors, you know? Um, and if it's from a place of fear, the result is never something positive, right? It's impossible to get apple juice from an orange. It just doesn't work like that. Can you share, I, I think something that, that maybe, and I'm just saying this is my own experience as a lawyer, I do a lot of bankruptcy work and one of the biggest concerns is like stigma. And I think I would assume that one of the biggest issues or obstacles that, um, or objections rather, that people may have with looking even into even working like this, right, is stigma. It's hard enough, you would think, like people who don't know what they don't know, my child or my, my spouse or whoever it is related in their sphere has an addiction, like some, a problem with drugs or alcohol. That's hard enough to deal with. But what is the conversation that people you think are having in their minds versus like the conversation they should be having that makes it a good fit to reach out to you? Oh, great question again. Um, good fit to reach out to me. I, I love it when people have tried other things when the families have gone to the family meetings. Um, I know for me in Massachusetts, in my area, it's Al-Anon, Learn to Cope. There are some allies in recoveries, a smart recovery. Um, it's, it's different than other um, counties and countries even, I get it. But I like to encourage the families to go to these meetings. That way they have an idea of the requirements, the recovery process, what the recovery process looks like exactly. But the sweet spot for me um, is right when, right when it's discovered. While the denial is there, um, the person who is struggling with the addiction is not really admitting to it yet, right? Um, and the family is, you know, working and trying to figure out how to resolve the problem, how to um, help the person, encourage the person to seek treatment and, um, you know, start that journey. That's my sweet spot. Uh, but questions would be, are you in a relationship with someone who's struggling with drug and alcohol addiction? would be one. Um, I would highly encourage family recovery. I feel like um, treatment for people struggling with drug and alcohol addiction is just one side of the coin and the family is the other side of the coin. So it's not just like, you know, uh, what the family, what I can do for people to reach out to me. Um, I will just put it out there and help and encourage anybody who hears this, your audience and whoever listens, right? To, if you are in that, situation to take care of yourself to get help and support for yourself and really listen to your inner guidance and um care about how you feel that's what i would say no that that's pretty powerful um on that same token what it's easy to talk about like what makes a good day right As, when you do the work that you do helping families and whatnot I, I, from time to time, I like to ask about the challenges, right? And so in your case, may, 
what kind of challenges do you face? You shared a little about the, like the predominance of fear within the family unit when you're dealing with a, a loved one who's, who's got a drug or alcohol addiction. What other like challenges do you find when even when people reach out to you, whether it's the, the addicted person themselves or their family members, and like it just doesn't come together? Like what, what makes you go home and say like, it was a rough day? Mm. Yeah, well, work from home now, from the comfort of my home. <laughs> this this type of work fulfill me. It's um it's very rewarding. Um, I see it as helping people put put the puzzle pieces together, and I enjoy puzzles. I enjoy you know just arts and craft stuff and. I can chat and talk to people all day long. Um, I don't really um, see it as a burden. I used to because the frustration was, all right, well, how do I really get people to change? How do I, I mean, they have to see this. They have to do this differently, you know? But then when I learned to take a step back and just see myself as the kind of like, I guess the the passage, hence my the title of my business, right? Passage, um, as kind of like the the conduit, just allowing the information to flow through me, right? I give people the information, I give people the tools, um, but it's up to them to use it. And I cannot force that process for anyone. And you cannot force anyone who's not ready and willing to change. Um, which is something I had to learn the hard way, but I think I'm there now. So because I'm there, it's no longer something I'm I'm dealing with. So, um, you know, I love it. I celebrate with my clients when there's a win. I cry with my clients when there's a loss, you know. I, I'm there with my clients through the whole step. Um, one day at a time, I'm right there with them. I wanted to ask you like why why this matters to you, but I think I think you just touched on that why it matters to you, and, and I appreciate that. It's like if you look at any study or any news article, any research around it, mental health issues and addiction, whether it's drugs and alcohol, abound, especially here in the United States, and like I guess around the I don't want to say around the world, but because I, I don't know like data around it, but here in the United States particularly like mental health issues and drug and alcohol abuse are rampant. Yet for the most part, ask anyone who's involved in it, like these areas are severely underfunded, like knowing to you why this work matters so much. Why do you think it's still such a challenge that it doesn't matter as much to, to like people and communities at large? Uh, that's a loaded question. And I'm going to give you an answer and I'm sure it'll probably really change <laughs> after I get off this call and within the next day or so, right? I don't know. But I feel like I mean, mental health matters, but mental health, um, the, the cure is really, um, is, it's not, the cure to mental health and addiction is education. It's awareness, it's love, it's connection, right? Um, and when you have a lot of people who are all uh, just operating from fear, 
um, just operating from chaos and just overwhelm and not really knowing and understanding what to do, right? Because a lot of family members, what they what they do is because they had to kick somebody out or something like that. You know, they, they advise another person, hey, you know, you have to kick that person out. You know, you can't let him stay in your house. But it's from fear. It's not because they, they, that's effective, right? Again, one thing that may work for one person doesn't work for the other. But um, it's, I don't even, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no, it's absolutely all right. It was definitely what? a loaded question. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of entities involved. And I, you know, I just curious, like when you talk to a practitioner or someone who's working in the field, like what they see as the, the bottlenecks to getting people and families in this case, the help that they need to like manage a problem and hopefully, hopefully overcome it. Um, you, you've shared before, like, the, yeah. I guess Can what I, I want to ask yeah. Uh, one thing I would add to that though, is it's because nobody understand how exactly um, their feelings are being generated. I feel, you know, that that's my theory. Um, most of the, I mean, men are, one of the main reasons people developed some type of drug and alcohol addiction is to um, feel better. Right to to find a better feeling way, right? That that works. You're feeling depressed or you're feeling anxious, some liquor or use some type of drug, you're going to feel better. It works, right? It's a coping tool. Uh, but what tends to happen is that it, it, it works too well, and then we get hooked and we and uh, we start having those um dysregulated thoughts, right? And we're not really being aware of what we're thinking. And because we're not aware of what thinking, we're not really um, noticing how our thinking is impacting and affecting how we feel. So everyone is going around saying, oh, you make me feel angry. You're making me depressed. You know, you're getting me sad. If you didn't do this, then I wouldn't have done this. You know, there's a lot of um, miscommunications and just mis, um, uh, misguided responsibility, like misplaced responsibility in that field. Um, that's what I, that's what I feel. That's my personal theory. Um, that may be why. And this is the other question too. I, I used to ask a lot being in this field and on this journey is why why is addiction a family disease right and i know um some people don't see it as a disease um they see it more so as a choice someone makes and you know like there's there's a choice you make and then you there's there's the consequences you deal with right uh but even if you don't look at it from that standpoint and you're looking at it from just a family issue family problem um it boils down to like everybody playing a role in it like yes there it may some genetic factors there may some environment there may be some environmental factors as well, right? But really what makes addiction uh, a family disease or like a family affair is because each individual tends to trigger each other. They tend to like feed off of each other, right? Unknowingly, they do it unconsciously. Um, this is why like all of it is happening. For example, can I share the story? 
with you. One client I was working with, um, a couple story. Okay. So Susie was drinking and one of her behaviors was while she was actively drinking was brush her teeth. So she would brush her teeth in the middle of the day, throughout the day and rinse with mouthwash to cover up the smell of alcohol. Right. So her husband, Jack, just kind of just, you know, um, he was onto it. He knew it. He just, he just, you know, didn't do anything. Sometimes he would address it, but you know, other times after a long day from work or, or wherever, he just didn't have time to really like, you know, um, address any of that. Right. So he just didn't. Right. So if, um, then there were times when she would go into treatment, come home and she would be fine. She wouldn't be drinking. But yet, because she was in that habitual behaviors, just brushing her teeth throughout the day randomly, and she did that, he would instantly assume that, oh, my goodness, you know, um, she's been drinking, right? And names I made up, um, if you happen to be Susie and, and Jack, <laughs> this is just random story, right? Um, I talked to a lot of people throughout the whole day and names just, um, you know, come up and, and stuff. But yeah, just one example of how she was, uh, the, her partner was triggered and he, she reacted. Um, he confronted her. And of course, you know, there was an argument because he, she said, you know, I'm not drinking. He said, yes, you are. I can smell it. I can see the behavior, but unaware that he was actually being triggered. You see? So, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just misunderstanding, unaware. Um, that's what I would say. You actually read my mind because I, was, I, wasn't, I wanted to ask you what a success story looks like. But if we can stick with our friends, Susie and Jack, like I, I was... Uh, I kind of want to ask how, how did that, or how does that kind of client or patient, I don't know what you call them, but people you work with end up working with you. Like what's in the case of Susie and Jack, was it Susie who's trying to recover, reached out, or was it Jack who's frustrated and like, doesn't know what to do anymore because for him recovery failed. Like how, how did that, you know, Susie and Jack, how did you end up working with them and if like you can like share a little bit about like what was the ultimate resolution for Susie and Jack? Oh, they are still happily married. They're still together. Um, and they're, you know, maintaining their recovery together. And most of the ways in which I get my clients, I refer to the people I work with as clients because that's what they are. Uh, I'm not a health, uh, I'm not a mental health practitioner. I'm not a licensed mental health um, professional. What I do is coaching um, and that, you know, it's all out of pocket. I don't accept any type of insurance either. Um, I do, I mean, for audience only as person who um, schedule and sign up with me because I do understand that, you know, not everybody can afford my services. I get that. However, though, um, it's mainly through word of mouth referral. People I've worked with, people who know me, people who follow me on, on social media. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. 
Um, I've been fairly active within my own community um, for quite some time now. So um, I would say um, I have some key contacts and a few people who know me and who have, you know, referred clients to me. So, yeah, that's how I mainly get my clients. Now, as we start wrapping up, I want to ask you about, again, specifically your offering. You like you deliver a lot of your services and I, I, the, the discovery call with potential clients through your website, Pas- Pasaje LLC, um, PasajeLLC.com. I was trying to figure out, is it Spanish? Is it English? Is it French? But PasajeLLC.com. How is it? I, I, I know that uh, you share that you, you have different methods by which you deliver your content, some of it through a pre-recorded stuff, some of it through coaching calls. Like when people do reach out to Judy, what can they expect if, if they decide to reach out to you? Uh, what can they expect? That's a wonderful question. So the people who would reach out to me would be the family members of individuals, right? Um, struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. It's very rarely that um, people in recovery themselves would be the one who do the reaching out, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, right? Um, but when people do reach out to me, they're reaching out to a human being, <laughs> whether it's by text or via email or on social media. So it all depends, um, you know, how we are initially connected. If it's on social media and we're, you know, chatting on a post and we're both laughing and having fun it's like you know it's it's whatever it's very chill and and laid back i'm very easygoing um whatever works for my clients really i mainly work through zoom uh but some people are not comfortable being on camera so i get on zoom without video and i have phone calls with people messenger uh but i'm i'm flexible very awesome um Judy, this was great. I mean, I, you know, I shared just intimated briefly in the beginning. I, I've, in my own family, I've, I've kind of experienced it um, as seeing what addiction can be, like the, the rough parts of it. And so um, it's, it can sometimes seem hopeless as a family member. What do you do? And you're not, you know, if you don't feel equipped to, to deal with it so or, or manage it. So I appreciate the work that you do and, and the outreach that you do. You shared that there's lots of different ways that people can connect with you. We've got the website, PassageLLC.com. How else can people um, connect with you after hearing this podcast if they want to get to know more about Judy and how to work with you? Um, definitely on Instagram. It's Passage, P-A-S-S-A-J-E underscore L-L-C on Instagram. Um, and on Facebook, it's um, Judeline Gallic, just my name. I mean, I would hope that if people would Google my name, I would come up on the internet somewhere. So <laughs> I'm not that hard to find. <laughs> Very awesome. I'll definitely link those up in the show notes. Judy, this has been, again, I appreciate you taking your time, energy, sharing your experience and the wonderful work that you do with the people that you work with because again it, it's it's something that doesn't get a lot of attention um, especially you know with funding and whatnot um, but it's hugely impactful because it's the challenges are really rampant um, so I appreciate you coming on the adulted revisit podcast and sharing that as we wrap up if you have any final parting words for the audience 
Um, absolutely. So the one thing that family members always say, um, they ask me also one thing that they can do. I would say, learn to laugh at yourself. You know, don't take so, things so seriously. There's no urgency. You know, it may seem like it's urgent. It may feel like it, but there's no urgency. So learn to laugh at yourself. And thanks. Thank you so much once again for having me on. It was a blast and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for being so gracious. Judaline Gallic. Passage LLC, link those up in the show notes. And with that, Air Nation, until next time, take care, be well, bye for now.